Good afternoon and welcome to Contracts for Hearing Officers and Mediators. Our presenter this afternoon is a former professor and current judge pro tem and administrative pro tem, Susan Dykoff. Uh, we've got a lot of material to get through, so let's get ready. Let's welcome Judge Dykoff. And get ready to go. Thank you, Charlie. Oh, here we go. And um, I do have props. And I think I know most people in the room, so I'm going to call names. Um, I think I, the only person I don't know is you, sir. Scott, okay. And you, sir, behind Bill. Ray Harley. Ray Harley. Ray, yes, I, okay. Ray and Scott. Okay. All right. So you should have. Um, you should have contract essentials for justice court judges. You should have a handout. What it has is the revised Arizona jury instructions in it, um, if you'll open up. And so um, we are going to go through as many of these revised Arizona jury instructions as we can. Um, there are The answers are not in your packet. I'm going to give you the answers at the end of the session um, because I figured if I, you know why, if I gave you the answers far at the beginning, what would happen? No one will pay any attention. Yeah, they'd be like, yeah, the answers are in the pack, and I'm just gonna, you know, look at Facebook for an hour and a half. So I'm not. So the good news is you don't have to stress to write down the answers and like, what did she say? What was the answer? Was it yes or no? I don't remember. Because all the answers will be at the end, and then you can keep the ending packet and throw away the other this packet when you get done. But that's what we're gonna do. That's the plan. This is supposed to be not a scholarly treatise. On, uh, on contracts, but it's a little more scholarly than I would actually prefer for it to be. And uh, what Charlie asked me to do was to take Judge Bernard Barnes, who's no longer with us, take his materials and present them to you today. So those, these are his materials, revised by me, updated by me uh, for 2019, and then uh, with his answers and my answers combo together. So uh, that's kind of the plan. And the only way to get through this is to kind of just zip right through it. So we're going to try to cook right along if we can. So any questions before I get started? Okay, I think I know those people. Now, I have props. I do have the chicken. This was a gift from one of my students. I taught contracts for about 17 years in law school, various law schools, two different law schools. Um, and so I uh, would like to have somebody take the chicken and somebody take the hammer and the paintbrush and someone take the box of kind bars or the box of something. There's no kind bars in it yet. Okay. What would you like? Hammer? Paintbrush? Hammer. Okay, paintbrush. It's just for fun. Oh wow. Sure, okay, and then I Charlie wants to get this chicken I bet <laughs> So when I talk about the, the kind and then car keys, you get some car keys out because I'm gonna buy and sell a car today. Marty? That's you? Okay. So you can pass your prop to someone else if you want to. Uh, but, oh, and I need uh, someone to take the bottle of water and somebody to take the actual kind of bar. Can we water? No. <laughs> it's a prop. <laughs> I've tried to drink this all afternoon, Bill, so <laughs> no, you can't drink my water. Okay, you guys are going to keep these two for me? Okay, very good. Such a deal. And then I have one more, but this one is kind of precious too. Actually, I have two more. I have a ring, Judge Lopez. Uh, but I want it back. And she, she and I both like jewelry, and ah, we'll get married a um, jewelry box. Okay, those are props. Okay. So, just a moment for Judge Barnes, just an appreciation for him. I listened to his podcast multiple times, 
And I would be in the car listening to him and yelling at my car, right? Like, no, no, judge, no, you tell him that's right. it's not a contract. So the whole deal today is, is it a contract? Is it enforceable? What are the damages? That's kind of what we're after today. Um, so it was, a, it was a great presentation, and we're gonna, we're gonna try to do him some justice. So a promise is a promise that this doesn't make it a contract. You must find that all the elements to form a contract exist and not just try to be fair or reasonable when you have contract disputes. What are some of the contract disputes examples that you've seen in your, in your work in the justice courts? Lawsuits, just very briefly. The landlord said that they would accept uh, partial payment, uh, give $100, and that could give over the next month for the rest Which is a little different for us because the Landlord Tenant Act applies to landlord and tenant disputes. But let's talk about the landlord, at least as a contract. And so when they're fighting over the security deposit, well, even the Landlord Tenant Act applies there too. So I'm looking for cases where there's no statute. I promise to pay my, my friend back $500. I promise to pay my friend back $500 if I didn't pay. Sold a little trailer or whatever, not anything. Wanted to have security, so we work out a contract. I sold a I sold a trailer and and then I'm on time, it sounds like, and there's some collateral for that. And maybe didn't work out. I had one case I had I really enjoyed that was the return of a necklace. It was a between uh, ex-boyfriend and ex-girlfriend. I want the necklace back. So, um, I, so here's a couple of examples that Judge Barnes would want us to do. I love you, Mary. You're so wonderful. I love you so much. I promise I'll make you my heir. Or I have 10 Cadillacs and I'm going to give you two. It's a promise. Promise is a promise, but it's not a contract. Is that an enforceable promise in court? The non-lawyers are. So he wants to, he would say the non-lawyers are supposed to answer this. It's verbal contract. It's verbal, right? Okay. It's promise. It's firm. It could even be in writing. Is it enforceable as a contract? Well, it's not quiet. Because there's no consideration. Because there's no consideration, okay? There's no, she's nothing, he's getting, or whoever this is, I love you, Mary, whoever the speaker is, are they getting anything back for the, for the giving of the, um, making my heir or giving my, two of my Cadillacs? No consequence. There is no benefit back. There's nothing coming back. There's no quid pro quo, as they say in Latin. There's no this for that. There's no, I give you something, I get something in return. Okay, that's hard to read, so good thing you have your hand out. Okay, so the, each of these yellow slides is the Raji, and we aren't gonna read every single one because we're gonna have time, but for a contract to exist, there's gonna be six elements that we're gonna be looking for. What are those six elements? Ed, you've got one. Two more persons. There's an offer, acceptance, consideration, Okay, so let's an offer, an acceptance, a consideration. So those are three of them. Bill, you're right. We need two parties. We need more than one party. Um, but that's not uh, that's not one of the six. That's kind of an assume that we're going to have two uh, two parties there. There's a couple other buried in there. If you can kind of sort them out. Scott. Yeah, an intention to be bound. And what else plus an intention to be bound? Is it just stays in their mind and it's... Sorry? A meeting of the minds is the traditional thing that you hear about. I always told my students that was hard to apply 
in really in real life. And the Raji doesn't talk about really the meeting of the minds. They talk about an intention to be bound, but they talk about making that intention known to the other party. So can't just say it in the head, you know, I wanted to have a contract to sell you my trailer, but I never told you about it. It has to be communicated to the other side. What's the last one? Let's do an example. Let's do an example. Okay, here's an example. It's not on the slide, it's in, it's in my notes. A says, if you offer me enough money, I'll mow your lawn. B says, okay, I accept. Is there acceptance, an offer and acceptance? We, we certainly have an offer, we have what seems to be an offer and acceptance. We've got two parties. A says, if you offer me enough money, I'll mow your lawn. I didn't have a lawnmower prop. I tried to find something today that would be a lawnmower prop. There was nothing in my home that approximated a lawnmower prop. A comb. Nothing, yeah, nothing, I have nothing. Okay, and B says, okay, I'll accept. Is that a contract? How many say it would be a contract? How many say it's not a contract? Good, okay, Scott, why is it not a contract? Well, something's missing. There is no offer, there is no amount, Judge Medina says, there's no specificity. So you're a judge, you're a hearing officer, you need to grant a damage award. How much is enough money? Right? We don't have any specificity. So it has to be Sorry? We don't have any terms. We don't terms are not specific enough, so we cannot do that. That is not a contract. We don't actually don't have an offer. Let's look at the next one. An offer is a proposal to enter into a contract on the terms contained in the offer. It has to be um, clear and ambiguous. Let's do some examples. We did that one already. If you mow my lawn on Friday, I will pay you for your services in an amount I feel is fair. Greg? Well, it's nice between uh, you know, a couple of neighbors to maybe do something, but I don't think there's a contract. Oh, no contract. So they come into court and they want you to, to render a judgment. Can you? Only one side here. If you mow my lawn on Friday, I will pay you for your services in an amount I feel is fair. We could have a meeting of the minds even. But we don't know, we don't have a meeting of the minds on one important factor, which is? Dollar. Yeah. Dollar amount. Exactly, the dollar amount. Right. So without a dollar amount, price is the most, to me, the most important element of a contract. If price is not there. Now, can the judge simply say, well, I'm just going to order what's reasonable and fair. I'm just going to look at what the fair market value of lawnmower costs would be. I'm going to allow the plaintiff to bring in five lawnmower. People are shaking their heads at me like, no, 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 no. I love that. Shaking his you are right. Okay, you are right. Why not? Andrew? No contract, no, we don't have a contract. So again, this is back to, we have to find the elements, we're not just looking for what's fair and reasonable. Um, okay, I think George says to Mary, Marty, you have my car keys? Do you have my car keys? Yes. Okay, I think, you think you want to sell your car, and you would take $500 for it. Have you made an offer? Why not? You're thinking about it. Yes. Just thinking about it is not an offer. We need words of promise. We need I will, I shall, I promise to you, I will sell you, I will buy. Okay, we don't need I'm thinking about it. Good. You will roll. 
Mary can even say, I'll take it. Contract? No. No, no contract. Because he hasn't made an offer. He's just considering it. Mary might have made an offer, but he hasn't made an offer. Hey, Tom says to George, if you will mow my lawn on Friday just before my wedding, I will pay you 50 bucks. Offer? Okay. Now, Tom says to George, if you will promise to mow my lawn on Friday, I will pay you 50 bucks. Offer? No acceptance. We're not there yet. We're just doing an offer. Is that an offer? Well, wait, you just told me, Warner, that the last one was an offer. What's the difference? If you will mow my lawn, what's the difference between if you will mow, I will pay you, and if you promise to mow, I will pay you? I can't enforce a promise. Well, we can actually. That's the beauty of contracts, is that contracts, a promise, so there's two types of contracts, and this is fancy and academic, we don't need to know about particularly, but you can have two promises. I promise to mow your lawn, you promise to pay me. We have a binding enforceable contract from now until the wedding. If you say to me before the wedding, I will not come, I'm not gonna come home, I can sue you for breach. If I say to you before the wedding, I ain't paying you, I don't like you anymore, I've breached. Because then we can't enforce mutual promises. But the other kind of contract is called a contract promise for an act. So that second, both of those are good offers. Both of those can be accepted. What's different about them is that if you will mow my lawn on Friday, just before my wedding, I will pay you 50 bucks. Can't be accepted by a return promise. It can only be accepted by the other person doing what? Accepting. And how is the only way they can accept that offer? Tom says to the one, one, two, three, four, four now. Mow the yard. Mow the yard. So the way I remember these is the Brooklyn Bridge, or I think about bungee jumping. I was going to tell you guys about bungee jumping. If you bungee jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, I'll pay you a million dollars. Okay? And you go, I accept. I promise to jump. Now pay me. And no. The only way you get the money is if you bungee jump, right? So that's called a promise for an act. And a promise for an act is a good contract, and a promise for a promise is a good contract. Yes, but. Yes. It's an illegal act to bungee jump off the bridge. Oh, I'm sorry. If it's illegal, then it's not enforceable. So there's a big old doctrine of illegality. Um, so we have a statute. I didn't know that. But I'm not out there. Actually, the example I always use is if you walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, I'll pay you 50 bucks. Can we silence our cell phones, please? Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Revocation. This is the part that makes my head spin. So is your head, are you good so far? Head's not spinning too hard? Because I know when I first started going through this material, I was like, this isn't what I, this is not common sense. Because it's old English law, right, Mary? It's old, yeah, it's old English law. It's not common sense. Okay. Revoking an order. Sorry, let me show you something. Revoking an offer. This is the part that I think it just blows my mind. You can revoke the offer at any time before acceptance by the person to whom the offer is made, even though it says it's good or irrevocable for a specified period, even if it says it's to be held open, unless valid consideration is paid for the promise to keep the promise open. The way it can be revoked is by the offeror giving notice of the revocation, by a lapse of time, by the other person failing to adequately accept the offer, or by the detrimental incompetence of the offeror. So, example, Sam calls Roger and leaves a message on, on his answer machine. Who's got my paintbrush? We're, okay, Warner, I will pay you $5,000 to paint my house. You have until next Friday to give me your answer. 
So you're thinking, great, I'm gonna sit around and think about that for a while, right? And on Thursday, Sam changes his mind and he calls Warner and says, I withdraw my offer. Can Sam, can Warner, with his paintbrush, you're gonna be busy today because there's a lot of painting for some reason and all these hypos. Can this offer be withdrawn? Even though he's supposed to have until Friday to respond? Yes. Okay, yes it can. Good. By the person who made it. By the person who made it, by Sam. Sam can withdraw the offer. Right. Even though it says it can be, it's to be left open. Now, are the other ones on here? Nope. Okay, on our papers. There are three, two or three more I want to go over. Hopefully these are. Oh, well, I trade my hammer for the <laughs> We'll get to that. That's a good, that's a valid consideration. Okay, if Roger says to Sam, well, I'm sorry, to Warner. Roger says to Warner, no, here's how it works. Sam has said, I will pay you $5,000 to paint my house. You have until next Friday to decide. And Warner, you say, if you leave your offer open until Saturday, I will paint your house for $4,800. What has just happened? It, it sounds like a counteroffer, but that's not exactly, we're in, we're in the Raji on revocation of offer. So, um, can- you, You've turned down the original offer? Mm-mm. It's, it's a surpriser. This is a tripper. Andrew? Not an acceptance. Not an acceptance. If you will leave your offer, no, it's not. We have, he hasn't accepted the offer yet. So you've got the offer to paint, which is I'll offer to you $5,000 for you to paint the house, and you say in return if you put on, and you're leaving it open until Friday, but you've been to this class, and you know that I can revoke my offer at any time. And so you say, if you leave the offer open until Saturday, I'll, I'll give you a what? A discount. A discount. Once you see the discount for keeping the offer open, what is that? It is. It's little tiny baby consideration paid in the deal to keep the offer open. Now is my offer, is the offeror's offer irrevocable? Because remember back to the Raji, it's irrevocable unless there is valid consideration paid to keep the offer open. But it, but it has been offered. There is, so in this instance, I know it hasn't been paid, but can we, remember we can have a promise or we can have an actual payment or an act. So because, because in this situation there's a discount for keeping the offer open, you can see that as a $200 payment for keeping the offer open, making the offer irrevocable. That way when the homeowner changes their mind, they have been breached and you can hold them responsible. Is it, that's the part that makes my mind spin. Let me make it real easy, Mary. I want to buy your house, okay? And you say, and I say, here's my offer for, to buy the house. And you're like, well, I'm going to think about it a little while. I'm like, oh, no, I don't want Mary thinking about it, right? Because she's going to sell to somebody else. So I say, uh, she says, I want you to keep your offer open for a couple of days. And she doesn't want me to go buy another house somewhere else. So how does she make sure that she keeps me on the hook from, her, from revoking my offer? She's got to say to me, I'll give you a hundred bucks to keep your offer open for a couple of days so I have time to think about it. That's a really clear example. And this one, you saw right through it. You saw that $200 discount, and that's the valid consideration to keep the offer open. I didn't write it, just read it. 
acceptance of that offer. Sam didn't say okay. That's true. And so I guess if Sam says okay, I'll keep my I like that. So if Sam says, okay, I'll, I'll uh, keep the offer up until Saturday on the 4800, now we've got the option contract. Now we got to wait till Saturday, and now Roger really has until Saturday to decide if he wants to take the paint deal or not. So it's not an implied acceptance of the original offer. No. It's just an extension of the term. The way to think about options, the way to think about irrevocable offers is to think about them as option contracts and think about them as, as two contracts in the same insert transaction. So there's the big contract, which is I want to buy your house. I want you to paint my house. The big offer is, is there. And then there's a little offer on top of it that is, please keep your offer open and don't sell to anybody else. And you have to pay some extra consideration for that. And that's the one that makes my head spin. But it is true and accurate and correct. Okay. It happens a lot in corporate buyouts and it happens a lot in house sales because people, I'll pay you to take your house off the market for a while until I can think about it. Yeah. Okay, um, I kind of want to do this one. Roger says to his friend Sam, I'll paint your house for $5,000. Sam says, now, you acceptance people, this is your chance. Sam says, okay, right on, but let me check with my wife. Roger says, forget it. Has there been an acceptance? No. No. Why? Because there is no agreement. Why? The wife, there's a medicating issue here. It's conditional on the wife's, I gotta check with my wife, makes it uncertain, right? So no acceptance. And then when Roger says forget it, he revokes, and he's revoked. Has Sam accepted the offer before Roger withdraws it? Has Sam accepted? No, no he hasn't. Okay, on April 1st, Roger, yeah? Suppose you're concerned Let's go back to the $200. Suppose you're concerned that the length of time is a problem. Yeah. And you feel that the client is quite capable of paying the money. So you make the statement. Um, if you give me the decision by Saturday, I'll lower it $200. Do we we now still have a contract. You mean, do I still have an option contract? Yes. That's probably, okay, so the question is, if the offer or in the paint my, uh, I want you to paint my house for $5,000 and you have it till Friday to make up your mind. If the offer or comes back to the painter and says, okay, hey, I thought about it and I'll give you 48, that's not a good deal. Oh, I'll leave my offer open and irrevocable, but I'm gonna drop the price to 4,800. I think I'm back to Scott's idea that I'd like to have someone say yes to make sure that that option contract was solidly in place. I think it's just a matter of evidence, and you kind of made your, you kind of put your finger on something uh, that don't happen here. Nope. That words really matter in these offer situations. I thought I had it in here. Words really matter, and so you have to look at what was actually said and what the people are, what what was said and who said what. So I think you're already keying in on that. Okay, 
Last one, Roger writes to Sam and says, I need to have my house painted before my daughter's wedding. I like your work. I'll pay you $6,000 if you finish it by May, before May 1st. Let me know by next Friday if you will accept the job. On Saturday, Sam calls Roger and says, I accept. Is this a valid acceptance? Marty? Okay, why? Is it on the answering machine? Okay. It's not on the answering machine. Let's look at this one. Yeah, accept it by Friday. He didn't accept it by Friday. Okay, so it's a day late. Let me ask you, think about it this way. Marty could, on Saturday, if, if, if Roger hasn't heard anything from Sam by Friday night, on Saturday morning, if Roger hires a different person to paint, is Roger in breach of contract? No, because he hasn't heard anything. It's fair for him to go out and hire, and hire somebody else. So Saturday, Sam calls Roger and says, I accept. Um, no, Sam did not accept in enough time, not by what the offer said. So we don't have a contract, we don't have acceptance there. Okay, next one is acceptance. I already talked about it a little bit. I found the cutest picture of Charlie of a cat that I could. Um, it's the mirror image rule is what we're looking for. So Mary has my jewelry. Um, she has my jewelry box, and the jewelry box is something that I have treasured for many years, teaching contracts. So, an acceptance is an agreement, an expression, expression of agreement to the terms of the offer by the person to whom the offer was made. It must conform to the terms of the offer. It's the mirror image rule. It cannot have any changes. If it has any changes, what is it called? You've already told me. Counter offer. Very good. So. Sorry? We're getting to that. So I'm a kinesthetic, I like, I'm, I like tactile things. I'm a kinesthetic and visual learner. So the bottom of the jewelry case is kind of like scalloped like this. To me, this is the offer. It says, here's what I want. This is what I want. I want you to paint my house by next Friday, by, and I'll pay you $5,000 to do it. The acceptance when it comes in, I need more hands, has to match exactly the terms of the offer. So these two pieces have to fit together exactly. There can't be any you know, friction or differences or anything like that. It has to fit together exactly right. I think about the clamshell and the little mermaid. I think about all kinds of little visual reminders to make these two fit together. Um, and I'll pass it back to Mary. You can pass this around if you want. It's, all, it's, just, it's just a marker to keep. So if there is, if it doesn't match, it's not an acceptance, it's a counteroffer. George says to Roger, I'll pay you 15 grand if I'll build me a new garage. Bill, you're the, uh, you're the builder today because you've got the hammer. Okay, you say, good offer, but I'll build it for 15.8. Result? Is that a contract? Has there been an acceptance? It's a counter. It's a counter offer. Why? Came back with a different number, didn't mirror it. Terms have changed. Mirror, it doesn't fit. The mirror image rule is broken. It's a counter offer. When you change the price, that's always a, a counter offer. It doesn't have to be accepted? We don't have a contract yet because right. we have a counter offer. So what happens now, you as the builder, the homeowner has to say, I accept. I will not say that because I have to go and refigure all, all the prices. No, you just offered 15A. You're stuck. If I say now, I accept your, your offer for 15A, you have a contract, you're stuck with me. Well, I haven't had a chance. I would never say that. Okay, but you did in the hypo. All right. Now, instead, Roger replies, good offer, but would you consider paying 15.8? George says, no. Rogers quickly says, I accept. 
Do we have a contract? Yes. What's the difference? This is a very famous law school case from the English 1800s, 1400s or something. Well, does the presence of a counteroffer negate the original offer? It does. A counteroffer kills, terminates, and obliterates the original offer. It's gone. But, but if in number two, we have a contract, and number one, we don't. Number one, we have a counteroffer, and number two, we don't have a counteroffer. That's what the law is saying. What's the difference between the two? Well, George declined by saying no on number three. Focus on the words. Would you consider? Would you consider is what the court in that case said. They're like, well, that's just a question. That's not a counteroffer. That's just a question. It's good offer. I'm still thinking about it. Would you consider is just an inquiry? And it was deemed not to be a counteroffer. So when George says no, I wouldn't consider it. And Roger says I accept. The original offer was still alive and well. Hadn't been killed by the counteroffer rule. Now, this is going to be a matter of looking at the, the um, words that are said and the intentions of the parties um, and making a factual decision. Okay. There it is. I do have my, my takeaway. So words really matter. This is the one where words, yeah, where words really matter. So you can't, like I said, you can't just do what's fair and reasonable, what seems to make sense, what would be standard in the industry. At this point, you have to look at what was said by each party to determine whether an offer was made, whether an acceptance was made, whether a counteroffer was made. Good? The kinds of cases that I'm seeing are written on the back of an envelope, usually misspelled horribly, but if there's a date, an amount, two signatures, and it's not in dispute that the two parties did it, and that's your signature, ma'am, and sir, I'm good. There was a famous case that a contract was written on the side of a cow. It was a contract to buy and sell a farm written on the back of a bar bill was, um, you know, there was a kind of question about that one because they were a little drunk. So Charlie has the chicken on purpose. This is a gift from one of my students. The chicken, there's a famous case. There's, there's a, so yes, normally, con do contracts have to be in writing to be enforced? No. 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 We can enforce oral, verbal contracts. Oral contracts. It's nice when they're in writing, and I like it better, and it's much happier. Um, famous case on the chicken case was uh, the buyer and seller were from different countries, and this was kind of a restaurant case. The buyer bought chickens, and they put it in the German word, hune, hune, I don't know if anybody speaks German. And the sellers said, yeah, we'll sell you chickens, hewn, we'll sell them for this price. And the buyer was like, sweet, great deal, send them the chickens right over. And so when the chickens showed up, the chickens, they bought, they, everybody was in agreement that they had bought and sold chickens, it was in writing, and it was signed, and it was chickens, hewn, the German word. When they showed up, guess what they were? <laughs> they were not alive. They were, they were not alive in any, they, were, that's, they weren't supposed to be alive, they were, they were for eating. But apparently there are like capon that are for stewing and they're old and they're nasty and they're not young and fresh. They're like more, yes, they're not so great to eat. And that's what the seller shipped over. And the buyer said, no, I want young, fresh, tender, baby, little sweet chickens that taste wonderful. I don't want these old, rangy, nasty things. And they had a big fight. One of the, so the court had to go through all these different places to figure out what did the parties really intend. So what did the parties really mean when they said the word chicken? 
And what the court said at the end of the case was, maybe there was no meeting of the minds here. Maybe because the seller said, I was always going to send the bad, nasty chickens. And the buyer said, I was always going to buy the good young broilers and fryers. And I never meant anything different. And they went to the US Department of Agriculture Regulations. And they went to the dictionary. And they went to expert testimony. And they did all of the different places to figure it out. So even if it's in a writing, it might be that both parties don't really um, didn't have the same meaning. And then we have no contract and can't enforce it. But if they have the same meaning, it doesn't have to be in writing. It's nice. Um, and then we can't enforce it. OK. So that's a good question. The question is, is that who's, who has the burden of, of, of clarifying the word chicken? In that situation, I think that both buyer and seller were kind of gambling. They were kind of playing the odds. I'm going to get the, you know, I'm going to get the, good, I'm going to sell bad, sell bad stuff. I'm going to get the good stuff. Um, so the burden of proof as on the plaintiff in a contract case is it could be plaintiff or defendant. I mean, it could be seller or buyer who sues. It could be either party who ends up in court as the plaintiff. But the court didn't really say that there's a burden on any one party. Like, we could have an oral contract, and it could just be super unclear. And you might have to say, oh, it's so uncertain, so unclear. I have no contract here, and I can't enforce it. So that's a really good question. So it came down to the specificity of chicken? Well, eventually they had to go to trade industry usage. And you're right, Judge. What they ended up deciding was that um, at some point, the buyer had some inkling that there were different meanings of the German word, and they should have clarified. If they really wanted the broiler and fryers, if you want the good stuff, there's seven different types of chicken. You're the buyer. You should have. And that's what they decided. So you're absolutely on track with the court. OK, consideration we talked about a little bit. Um, can people make, can I buy Judge Lopez's ring, which is my old ring? Let's say it's worth, I don't know, 100 since she says no. Worth about 100 bucks. What if she says, no, I won't sell it to you, and I say, but I really want it. And I say, what about 50 bucks? And she's like, or I'm sorry, what about 300 bucks? And she says, no. And what if I say, okay, what about 1,000? She says, no. And I say, okay, three grand for that $100 ring. Pass it over. She's like, you're starting to make sense to me now. <laughs> Can I contract with her for a $100 ring and pay her three grand? I can, right. Can I make a bad bargain? Yes. Will you enforce it in court? If I would, then I'm like, I changed my mind. I'm like, she was not nice to me. I'm not paying her that money. Can she enforce that contract now in your courts? Yes, she can. I can make a bad bargain and you're going to hold me to it, right? Buyer beware, caveat emptor. Why? Because I could have gone anywhere, right? I was not over the barrel. I had no, there was no unconscionability. There was no under duress. There was no fraud. There was no anything like that. So I can make a bad bargain, and we're gonna, uh, and we're gonna enforce it. Okay, we're gonna try something a little bit different. So most of consideration is like money, painting, building a house, buying a ring, something like that. Uncle George says to his nephew Bert, if you will abstain from alcohol, gambling, and wild women. This is a real case. Until you are 21, I'll give you $10,000. Bert struggles but manages to do so. On his 21st birthday, he asks his uncle for the money. Uncle says, ha ha, I just did this for your own good. I received nothing of benefit or consideration for my promise, and you are the only one who benefited from living a good, clean life. Therefore, good luck, but no money. Bert grumbles, but he realizes, I'm a better man for living the lifestyle prescribed by my uncle. And then the uncle dies. Bert says, hmm. 
from a student state. Because my uncle's not around anymore. And so that's what really happened in the real case, is he sued the estate. Can Bert sue his uncle's estate and get his money? No. It, yep. it seems no, right? Because why? There's no consideration. Because no consideration, because why? What did the old man get out of it? Let's dig down into that. He got good feelings, and that was what he was selling for ten thousand dollars. He got good feelings, and that's what he was selling for ten thousand dollars. He might have gotten the protection of his reputation. He might have protected his reputation in the community, so the uncle might have gotten a benefit out of it. But the court actually didn't look at it that way, and a lot of people have argued there's a lot of benefit that he might have gotten from it. The court actually looked at it a little bit differently. They said, um, "Sorry, whoops." Come back to me. There we go. Um, they said there was consideration here. Famous Judge Cardozo, they named the law school after him in New York, um, said something along these lines that you can you can either give a benefit or you can give up something that you have a legal right to do. So my modern example for you that I come to think about. So yes, the answer is there is consideration here. There is consideration here. Because the nephew gave up something he had a legal right to do. What did he give? What did he give up? Right to drink and party. I don't know about the alcohol, but I think the gambling and wild women. He might have had a, a right to do that. So yeah, he gave up something he had the legal right to do. And so the, the rule here is that um, it can be a benefit received or something given up or exchanged. Think about a non-compete agreement. When you enter into a non-compete, don't you agree not to compete? Are those enforceable? Yeah. And you're giving up something. So that kind of helps me remember that. Yeah, but he will pay for the business. If you if you agree not to compete, it's because you were paid for something. Whether you let's let's say it's not and not in not in context of selling a business. Let's just say that I'm an employee, I'm valued, and I leave, and they say we want a non-compete, and I say you need to pay me some money for a non-compete. They right. said, okay, we'll give you $100,000 if you don't compete. You're saying, sure. okay, is that enforceable? Yeah, yeah because you, you got paid for giving up a right to compete. Right, you're right. Okay, let's do the next couple because I think they're, they're good about consideration. We haven't done this yet, have we? Mr. Jones gives his valued employee, Mr. Smith, a notarized promise in writing that says, in consideration of your 20 years of faithful service as an employee, I promise to change my will and leave you a one-half interest in my business. Jones leaves, decides to leave the business to his son and takes no action to change his will. After Jones dies, Smith sues and presents 10 witnesses that heard Jones make the promise and saw him write and sign the written document. Does Smith have a legal basis to claim performance on contract? It's written, it's notarized, it's solid, it's a promise, it's got witnesses. In consideration of your 20 years of faithful service, past service as an employee, I'm going to give you something. This is no consideration. Why? Because well, he didn't have that authority to give. Uh, no, well, let's say he owns the company. Oh, he owns the company. Yeah, let's say he owns the company. No, this is a, this is a, the, we're, we're focusing on the time frame of this. Mary, idea? Past consideration is no consideration. Past consideration is no consideration. The fact that he wasn't employed for a long time. It's kind of like a reward, but he's not really giving up anything or giving him anything. 
Right. There's no benefit received and then there's no legal right given up. There's nothing There's nothing coming back. It's in consideration of your past service. It sounds good. It's all nice and memorized in the writing, but past consideration is not valid consideration. If, if, he'd, if he'd have made that promise on the day he was hired, if you worked for me for 20 yes. years and, and be a faithful employee at the tail end of that, yes. that would be a different story. I'm going to repeat that for the podcast. So if at the beginning of the 20 years of employment, the employer had said, if you stay 20 years, I will do this. Now, valid, right? Because not only is he getting, the think about it, he's gotten paid, he's got his paycheck all his 20 years, he's worked, he's got his paycheck, he's worked, he got his paycheck, he made all that money, right? And then at the end, if he stays that long tenure, he gets an extra, because that was always said at the beginning, now it's regular consideration that's not passed. Judge? Oh, put the mic up? Okay, sorry. Well, I said so loud to them. Make any difference if that was in the, the manual of employment that was written 20 or 30 years ago? It's all about the timing. So if so, what we're looking at here is motivation. Did I do the 20 years knowing about and motivated by your promise to give me something at the end of the time? Or did I just do my work and I just keep my nose to the grindstone and at the end you were like, you're so awesome, I'm gonna give you something for the past. And then if it's something for the past, it's not valid consideration. It's not a contract, it's not enforceable. Even, even though it's in writing. Even though it's in writing, even though it's notarized, even though it's a promise, even though there's 10 witnesses. It's a, nice, it's a nice gesture, but it's not a contract. It's not a contract. It's not a contract. Now, you will see cases where people have relied on that contract, and we're not going to get to promise to raise stoppel. You don't rely on that promise, not a contract. Let's be more specific. You will see cases where people will say, I relied. There was a promise made. It was no consideration like that. I love you, Mary. I love you so much. I'll give you the 10 Cadillacs. And Mary runs out and you know takes out a big old loan or buys a house on the basis that she's going to get these cars. And now you're going to have Mary say, well, it was reasonable for me to rely on that promise. But you're like, that wasn't a contract. It's not enforceable. And you're trying to figure out, is that reasonable? And maybe it won't be. And she'll, she'll try to get, you know, she'll try to get some recovery. Go. Is, is a bill of sale a contract? A bill of sale is a contract. A loan is a contract. Uh, a loan, con a, you know, a lease is a contract. A oral contract is a contract. A oral contract on eBay is a contract. A marriage license is not a contract. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be in writing. Mary? This is not a contract. This is not a contract. Okay. It doesn't matter if death is taken out of the equation. Okay? It doesn't matter. It's past consideration fails as consideration every single time. Just put it in your notes. Well, it's, it'll be in your notes. Past consideration never works. Past consideration is past. It will not work. Okay? So if he didn't say, I'm, I'm going to base the 10 grand, uh, is that what we're talking about? Uh, or the, the, yeah, the percentage of the business. If he had not said it's going to be based on your your 20 years of loyal service, but just said, I am going to give you, will you, put you in my will for a half a percentage point of business. Now we're, now we're back to I love you, Mary, and I'm going to give you 10 Cadillacs. No consideration. If he had said, I think you're a great guy, I'm going to give you half my business. If he had said nothing, and just I hereby promise to give you one half interest in the business, doesn't, there's no consideration. You're looking for some this for that, some exchange. You want to bargain for exchange. 
Okay, will and testament. If this was the will and testament, we'd be in spirit court. Right, so we don't get those cases, and that's a that's a it's, that's a probate. Yeah. Pointing up there because I think they're up that way somewhere. But so if I change just a little bit, in consideration of you being my girlfriend, I want to marry you here at my a wedding ring. That's a whole that's a whole line of cases. The question is, in consideration of marriage, here's my wedding ring or here's my engagement ring. There's a whole line of cases on that that I'm not going to talk about because. Oh. I'm not. Unless you're seeing him in your court. Are you seeing him in your court? You promised to marry me, and now you're gonna get married, and now I want my ring back? Okay, there's Arizona law on that, and I should probably get it to you. Do you, do you remember that? It's different in every state. If it's in a small claims, the ring is less than 2,500 bucks, that's reasonable enough to get to the Charles says that if it's in small claims and the ring is less than $2,500, that's a reasonable reason to cancel the wedding. Well, I, I know that there's a real clear answer. Either the, either the ring goes back or it stays with the with the fiance, and I don't, I don't recall what it is under Arizona law. I can get that to you. But I'm pretty sure that this state has ruled on it and decided that when there's a broken engagement, that the ring goes to one or the other, and I don't remember. Anybody know? No? Can I those cases? I don't know. I, I didn't like the answer, so I tried to put it on my hand. Whatever it was, it wasn't the right answer. So the guy gets the ring back? Sorry? There's case law. Whereas there's case law both ways, but I'm pretty sure Arizona's ruled on it. And for us, we can't make them return the ring, but we can make them pay. That's right. That's right. We don't do specific performance orders, but we can pay for the value of the ring. So, um, Does it result in specific performance? It can. Negotiated afterwards out in the hallway. Yes, that was all of that on the way out the room. Okay, I like this one. Richard says to Mary, who was just jilted by her boyfriend, would you consider selling me your ring? Mary says, yes, I hate this ring. I'll sell it to you for 10 bucks just to get rid of it. So he can't get it back. Both know it's worth $3,500. Both know it. They make a bad bargain. Mary then says, so we already know we can enforce a bad bargain. We already tried to, I already tried to buy Judge Lopez's ring for a while for three grand. Mary says, Please, court, cancel the agreement. It was unfair. I was under a mental strain at the time. I didn't know what I was doing. It's totally unfair. It's unreasonable. It's irrational. And judge, judge, I really need your help. Does she get the ring back? Andrew says no. Why? You're right. Okay, you can make it back. But what about her mental strain? And what about her unfair unreasonability? And what about all that? Scott's shaking his head. No. It's not duress. There are defenses like duress, fraud, um, mental incapacity. She doesn't present those facts to us. She hasn't given us enough. You guys are awesome. Pete sells Joe a car. Two days, where's my car sale? Marty, you got my keys. He's not paying attention. You got my keys. Yes. Okay. Pete sells Joe a car. This one's confusing. Two days later, Joe calls and complains the car doesn't run right. Pete says, bring it back, and I promise I will fix it. Two months later, the car is not fixed. Joe is frustrated. He goes and gets it, takes it to another mechanic, and sues Pete for the cost of the repairs he promised to make and failed to do so. Should Joe get a judgment? Did he take it back? To get yes, it he took it back to get it fixed. He left it there and didn't get it fixed. Andrew's shaking his head. You're the only one who's shaking your head. You're like, no. You're right on, too. You're, you're, you're confident and you're, you're, and you're right. <laughs> I like that. Why doesn't Joe get a judgment? There, there was no 
try it and fix it. You were just promised and said, hey, I'll try it. And you get that all the time. I promised to fix it. There was no return on consideration. So that's not a, yeah, there's no, there's no consideration for the promise to fix it. Gertrude hires Barbara to build her house for the sum of 100. Can we back up a little? Let's say Pete still has the car in his possession. Yep. Pete still has the car in his possession, is the question. Another issue. That's another issue. Now, Pete is unjustly enriched, which there's a Raji on that. If you look up quantum Merowit, unjust enrichment, AKA restitution. Um, Pete is unjustly enriched. There's no contract, but Pete is holding something of benefit and value that doesn't belong to him. And so Joe should get what? Pay for the car. Yeah, pay for the, and now it's not the, the sales price. What's going to be Joe's damages if Pete's hanging on the car and not getting it back? Fair market value. Replacement value. Very good. Perfect. Okay. Gertrude hires Barbara to build her a house for the sum of $129,000. Barbara starts to build. Whoops, I underbid the project. I can't do it for $129,000. I'm going to have to stop work and I need five grand more. You need to add a few zeros to the end of that hypo to make it really make sense. But what's that called? Called breach of contract. <laughs> it's called a labor strike, right? You can't. When you underbid your project, what happens? Too bad, so sad, you're stuck. Caveat builder, right? And she and she she cannot, does she get the extra five grand? What if Gertrude says, okay, I'll pay you the extra five grand? You can decide to pay to not pay the subcontractors. Well, we don't have subcontractors. We just, we just, let's just do it straight with these two. So Gertrude in a panic, she says, well, I'll do whatever you want, Barbara. I'll give you the extra five grand. Just please get back on the project and finish my house. Does that change it? Yeah, no. Yeah, it changes. It doesn't change anything. Okay, she doesn't get the extra five grand. It doesn't matter that the owner, when they put the pressure on the owner, she's already under a duty to perform. There's no additional consideration for the extra $5,000. And she will not get the extra money. Right? She, she stopped work, she went on strike, she demanded extra money, she got the owner to agree to it, she got back on, she finished it. She doesn't, no new consideration to support that extra $5,000. What, we have a hypo later, we can probably skip over if we do this now. What would it take for Barbara's extra $5,000 actual claim to be upheld? What would need to be in the facts? What would you need to know? To award her the extra five. Uh, she's a licensed contractor. Nope. Gertrude not applied to the contract. She, she, she added something. Yeah, the licensed contractor. She's got to be a licensed contractor, or she doesn't get paid under the statute. The statute will be in your um, in your answer booklet when you get done with it. Um, I did a modification to. I need five bedrooms instead of four, okay. or upgraded vanities or something. So if you find in the facts that Gertrude actually said, Gertrude said. I want you to change the plans, and I want an extra bedroom, or an extra bathroom, or an extra fireplace, or an extra something. And Barbara says, okay, but it's going to cost five grand for that. Now we can give the, the five grand. Sorry? It's an amendment to the original contract. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but would you require that amendment to be in writing? You would, actually, I'm not. We're right there now. We're at contract modification. So. I feel like this happens a lot. Do you feel like this happens a lot? People like a contract and then they get in and they make decisions and they're like, no, let's change this and let's change that. And we talked about it and we changed our minds and then we did this. 
was going to be this, and then he couldn't pay, so he did a different thing. Okay, so I found an interesting thing in the Raji here. Um, party planning, there's been a change. Must prove there was an offer to change, acceptance of the offer, and consideration for the change. I found in Judge Morris's materials that generally, if there's a written contract and there's a lot of oral evidence and an oral modification, then he tended to disfavor that. Like he tended to not really accept an oral modification of a written contract. I thought that was interesting. That's not what I learned in law school, but I, I like it. Um, and so he is saying written contracts usually require modifications in writing unless the oral modification is fully performed, like the extra bedroom is completely built. So how many folks would require a written modification to a written contract? Okay. Yeah, I think that's generally, you know. There could be three or four different things, and it's, it's could be convoluted in order to. It could be very convoluted. And what Judge Barnes says is, don't get stuck in the he said, she said, and the arguing about what was said, and this was that, because they're going to argue about what was actually said. Unless everybody's in complete full agreement, and you have some evidence that has been performed. Um, then I think uh, I think we don't we don't want we don't want to modify a written contract with an oral modification. Do we need to take a break, or we just plug on through? Plug on through. Okay. If you need to take a, a break, I would be perfectly fine with that. Okay, just get up quietly. Don't take my break. <laughs> All right. We are at number nine. Consideration. I'm going to zip through these next couple of pretty quickly because this one, failure of consideration, is called material breach. Um, the key here is that if one side breaches the contract so severe, it's such a large breach that it defeats the very purpose of the contract. Does the other side have to um, then perform? Let's say I contract with Bill to build my house for $129,000 and he just doesn't even show up. Has he breached severely and does it defeat the entire purpose of the contract that he doesn't even show up to the job? Okay, do I still have to pay him $129,000? No, I don't. Yes, he breached. He didn't show up. So you're asking why to breach Suppose I left a message on your machine that says I'm held up at the last home and this is very important because there's a lot of material that we're still on release right now. And you've got some extenuating circumstances. I think we're going to get to that. I think we. I think we're going to get to that. Yeah. Let's do these two first, though. So we Roger. But we still want the bathroom. Oh. Simple. Okay. I, I hired him to add the room. Yeah. Paid him the money. Never showed up again. Yeah. And whether it be three thousand or twenty thousand. Okay. So let's go back to that question. I hired him to pay to, to build the room. It was going to be $7,000. He never showed up. Is he, builder, in breach? Yes. Can he be sued for damages? Yes. What are the damages of the owner? Cost to do the original work. Actually, it's the cost to get a replacement contractor. So if I can get somebody to come in at the seven grand and do it for exactly seven grand, I have no damages unless I can prove the delay somehow cost me some money. Like I had a wedding or something like that coming in my, at my house and had to have an extra room built for that. But if it cost me 10 grand to do the work, to get the work done that I had originally had a deal with the first guy for for seven grand, the owner gets damages of how much? Three. Perfect. 
Exactly right. Good. That's, that's so you don't want to over reward them. You want to give them the, the, the right. damages right. they're actually out. Good. Okay, this is pretty simple, I guess, then. Roger builds a tenth of the house he contracted for to build for Susan and walks away. Does he, uh, can he recover the value of his work so far? No. Not really. I mean, he's going to argue unjust enrichment and all that kind of thing, but not really. You can't use half of that for, for example. He has, he has not substantially performed and he has materially breached. She might be liable for the reasonable value of his work so far. Sometimes some of the courts would say yes, some courts would say no. But importantly, does he owe Susan any money? It's really Andrew's question. If you, if you, it's not just I didn't show up, but I did a little bit of the work and I walked away. He might be entitled to the value of his, of his work so far, but does she get damages? Yes. And the measure of her damages is what? Depends on how much it costs her to get the complete house built and subtract the cost that she either already paid him or that he's owed. And if that amount is greater, then that's her damages. Okay, so we're gonna um, we're gonna make her make. She may have to pay him a little bit for the value of the work he's done so far, and she's got to hire somebody else to come in and do the work. And if it costs her more putting those two amounts together than the original contract she had with him. Those are the amount of damages he has to pay to her. It's, com it's convoluted, but that's, you got it right. The most important part is that she, he's in major breach, and so she doesn't have to perform. Like if he shows up later after he's majorly breached and says, I'm here now, she can say, no, I hired somebody else. Now, if Roger builds a tenth of the house and the new contractor says, this is all yeah. substandard workmanship, I've got to rip it all down. Okay, question is, he builds a tenth of the house, it's all substandard work. Now, she doesn't owe Roger any money because the value of his work is nil. In fact, his work caused more trouble because he's having to take that all apart to actually build the house. And if she has proof of that, then she gets even more damages on top. Bottom line is when the smoke... Okay. Like he was detained officially. Oh, okay. So the question here is what about he was detained because there was a bad, there was a police crime situation, something place... He had a reasonable excuse for not performing. You have to decide if that excuse was, so we'll look at, we probably won't get to it, but was it foreseeable or unforeseeable? That was, that's one of the things that we, we talk about. But um, if- In this case, it was unforeseeable. If it's unforeseeable- It was supposed to be there at 8 o'clock yeah. in the morning and he ended up showing up at 2.30. Yeah. And in the meantime, the contractor had been hired and so see. And he told the owner, okay, so but he, that happened pretty quickly. She hired a new contractor pretty quickly. Did right. he tell her why he didn't show up to the job? Because right. he was unavoidably detained. So what we'll look at is, there's a later on down the, at the end of the slides, there's a picture of a lightning bolt. If you have an active dock, if there's a lightning bolt that prevents you from performing your contract, then you are excused from performing and you're either excused from, he might be excused and be permitted to go forward. Um, and he might, that's a complicated situation because he might be owed damages because she didn't excuse him and she hired somebody else. Now, when a contractor doesn't get paid, uh, we'll, we'll just put a pin in that for a minute. We'll go back to what his damages might be. Roger uses plastic plumbing in the kitchen instead of copper, but the rest of it he builds perfectly to build for Susan. Can she refuse to pay him any money for the house because he didn't build with the specs? Warner says no. Why? Because he did everything else except that. Right. Incorrectly. So that's what she could legally 
not pay or deduct to get it up to code or up to the contract. Perfect. Okay, so she cannot refuse to pay him any money for the house. She has to pay him for the house. This was an old famous case where a lawyer actually tried to get a vacation house for free because of the plumbing. It didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work. Uh, same that same Judge Cardozo said no, no, no. Um, and so in that situation, but uh, he's going to owe her some damages equal to what? The cost of the copper pipe. No, not the cost of the house to, to make it to the contract specifications. So a minor breach, substantial performance is what we just saw. If Roger builds the whole house except for the plumbing, that's called a minor breach, aka substantial performance. Um, Susan still has to pay him, but he may uh, he was he has breached a little bit, and he's due he still has to um, pay her damages, the cost to correct the deficiencies. If Roger builds a house for Susan and paints it Sunset Surprise instead of Sunset Yellow, does she still have to pay him for the house? Kind of the same question. But here's the question I want us to ask. Yes, she still has to pay him, um, but she gets some, some damages. And the damages would be what? Cost of painting the house back the color that was under the contract. Can the court decide that the color doesn't really matter? Can you just say to yourself, those colors are darn close, you know? That's good enough. I'm going to call this good enough. Well, there might be a homeowner's association that requires a certain. There, there might be an HOA that really wants sunset surprise. <laughs> okay, but are we allowed to change the contract? No. No. We have to we have to enforce it the way that they um, that they wrote it together. Okay, if there's a condition, I'll pay I'll pay you thirty five hundred dollars to paint my house on Fourth Avenue if I buy it, and uh, I don't buy it. Has anybody been? Has anybody breached? No. No. Why not? It's a conditional contract. Well, let's say that you say, I accept, I accept your offer to pay, to pay me $3,500. Well, let's say that we have a contract. Now it's a conditional contract. So when the condition falls through, nobody has to perform. Contract is dead. Contract is dead. Good. Roger says to Sam, I'll pay you half of any profits I make on the sale of my house over the $56,000 I paid for it if you paint my house. When it's sold, the house sells for less than the purchase price. What does Roger owe Sam? Nothing. Didn't meet the conditions. Nothing. Didn't meet the conditions. You guys are too smart. I love it. Okay. This is, this is what you were asking. I think this is what you were kind of getting at before. Waiver of condition. Yes. So if we have a condition, the other party in the contract, the party for whose benefit the condition is, can waive it if they want to. So Mary agrees to pay John $3,000 to paint the exterior of her house on the condition that he only uses tough bare paint. He can't find this particular brand of paint. He doesn't really care. He suggests to her that she consider a different brand that he considers equal or better in quality. What are Mary's options? It can be waived. She can waive the condition. To waive a condition, you can do it um, affirmatively, like, like by words, or you can do it through conduct. So by words, what would she have to say to waive the condition? Sure, go ahead. It's okay to use the other paint. It's okay to use the other paint. Sure, go ahead. Those are fine. Go on with it. It's fine. We'll, we'll just move on. Move forward with it. Or if she left it a text, maybe it said, move forward with the contract. That would be good. Now, what if she goes, what if she, she hears what he has to say, she goes and picks up a different brand of paint for him to use, she delivers it to the job, and he starts painting. 
Has she weighed the condition of the tupperware? And she's done that by an implied, yes, she has. She's done that by her conduct, by her conduct. And then she says she didn't know what she's doing because she's not a painting expert. And, yeah. she and she said she was under a lot of mental strain. And this is irrational and unreasonable. And Judge, I really need your help. All right, waiver is either, the, so we can also waive conditions, which we just did, or we can actually waive legal rights under a contract. This is about waiving performance. The defendant has the burden of proving waiver of performance here. So this is putting the burden of proof on, this is gonna be a defense. John contracts to paint, I think this is your hypo, Bill. John contracts to paint Mary's house for $6,000. His son takes ill. Mary says, I will get another contractor to, she's not happy because the other bid she got was $1,500 more than John's, but she says, I'll get another contractor to paint the house. You take care of your son. She later sues John for breach of contract. Does she win? No. No? Oh, you're so awesome. Everybody's like, no. Why doesn't she win, Andrew? She broke the contract. She broke the contract. Yeah. She, waived, she waived his performance. She waived his performance when she said, you go, you go take care of it. Now, does John have a good reason not to perform? Is this a legal excuse not to perform the contract? Depends on how ill the son is and depends on whether he's saying I have to be in the hospital all the time or whether in my hypo it says, um, my son is sick and I would prefer you get someone else to paint the house. That doesn't sound like, uh, like a legal excuse. Okay. Jane makes it impossible for John to perform his contract to buy a build or a house by going out of the town by during the time period for the build. Can Jane sue him for breach of contract? You're frowning because Jane's done something wrong. Hasn't Jane done something wrong? She went out of town. She's made it impossible for him to perform, so she has waived her, uh, waived her demand of performance or waived the time or something like that. Okay, and I'm gonna skip that last one. Okay. A couple of ones that I think are worth doing. This one I'm gonna go really fast through. Anticipatory breach. This, what's neat about this is that um, we enter into a contract here. We have a promise for a promise, right? You're gonna paint my house and I'm gonna pay you. And we enter into that contract here and then we walk over here and the time for performance is set over here in September sometime. And between now and September, I find out that your company goes bankrupt. And there's no way you're going to come paint my house. And I really want it done before fall hits because I'm going to have a big party in the fall. I really have to have it done. So I know you've gone bankrupt. I hire another contractor and you sue me because I've breached our contract by hiring another contractor. In this situation, I win because I'm entitled to assume that you've anticipatorily breached your contract and I can, I can walk away from our contract and hire somebody else to do the job if I know for sure that you're not gonna do it. That's a, that's a more um, implied anticipatory breach, the filing for bankruptcy. Let's make it more specific. If here we enter into the contract and then partway through, before it gets to September, you call me and you say, I'm not coming, Dykoff, I'm just not coming. I'm done with you, I don't like you, sick of you, our relationship is broken down, I don't care, we have a contract, I'm not painting your house. Okay, hire somebody else, get down to here in September and you sue me for breach of contract. Can you sue me for breach of contract? No. Because um, you, you've reached our contract, I'm entitled to go out and hire somebody else. Do you ever see those? No? Okay. 
All right, let's do Daddy Big Bucks. Let's see if you see these. Third-party beneficiaries. Third-party beneficiaries. Daddy Big Bucks builds a house for his newly wedded daughter. He gives the builder's plans and specifications with a clear notation that the home was built as a gift for his daughter using only the best materials. After the house is completed, the daughter finds out the house is built with substandard materials. She sues the builder, and the builder says, you're the... Sorry? You didn't pay for it. You don't have standing. You can't be here in court. You have no ability. How can she sue you to breach a contract when she's not even a party to the contract? Guess what? She gets to sue. And why? Because she has standing in the matter since she, she's a beneficiary. And there's a key here in the facts. There's a key here in the facts and in the Raji. It's not just that she owns the house now. Well, that might, I guess we need to put real estate law aside for a second. But in this situation, in this hypo, what is the key there for the builder? What is the key that tells us that Susan gets standing to sue? The father said the house was being built for her. The father said the house was being built for her. So the builder was on the builder was on notice. The father said the house was being built for her. The father was the builder was on notice, and so it it meets the Raji. It meets that rule of the party beneficiary here. That's great. Okay. Now, let's see what time. What time is it? Oh, there we go. Perfect. Twenty minutes. Okay, I have time to do a couple more of these. Huh. These are some of my favorites. Every party has a duty to act fairly and in good faith. You know, my favorite is like, you show up to paint my house, and I open, you show up on the appointed day, and I, I see you out there, and you're knocking on the door, and I go, I'm not letting you in. Not letting you in. You can't paint. No, you can't come in. I've breached my duty of good faith and fair dealing, and I'm the bad guy. I'm the breacher in that situation. So, two hypos here. Rufus has, Sam has a contract with the state to complete a section of road as a, as a general contractor. Rufus has a subcontract with Sam to do the paving portion of the road and he finds out he underbid it and he doesn't want to be stuck doing this job. So he calls up the state and, and delivers a bunch of really awful information to the state about Sam such that the state cancels the contract with Sam. So now Rufus doesn't have to fulfill his subcontract. Is Rufus off the hook, or has he breached? So, he used fictitious information? No, he, maybe it was real. Maybe it was real after he changed it. Does it say it's, it's fictitious? He sends anonymous letters to the state advising that Ill, Sam is ill-prepared to do the job. No, it doesn't say that he's saying false things. He's trying to get off the hook, though. He's doing it on purpose to get off the hook, to get out of the contract. And so this is a breach of uh, duty of good faith and fair dealing. If you if you try to go back out into the, the if you try to get out of a contract that you've gotten yourself into because you've underbid it and it's just not a good deal for you, and you try to do unfair things to try to get out of your contract so that you can uh, sort of get back out of the marketplace, if you will, that's a breach of good faith. So here he has he has breached his duty of good faith. Let's make it more let's make it a little bit easier. Francis, okay, so Francis has a contract with Kevin to 
construct a business office using a very rare and special kind of wood that's hard to find and in short supply. Kevin gives Francis a bid on the project that's accepted, they have a contract. Later, Francis finds another contractor who will do it for a lot cheaper. Francis says, hmm, other contractor, go buy all the supply of that super rare wood in the community so that the first contractor can't even find the rare wood, um, and that way I'll be out of that contract and I can hire you. Right? That's a breach of good faith and fair dealing, and Francis has breached the contract. Francis will be liable to Kevin because he has done that. Okay. All right, damages. Two types of damages. We've got direct damages, consequential damages, and lost profits. Yep. Suppose she's able to prove that it was beyond her control. She's still going to be sued? Bill wants to see the act of God slide. He, you said, what if it was beyond her control? What, the rear would? Yes. Okay, well, yeah, Francis. No, no knowledge of that. Okay, well, what if Francis didn't do anything badly and the rear wood just disappeared? Right? Well, that's not the issue here. Okay. The issue is, unbeknownst to her, uh -huh. the second person went and bought up all the wood. Okay. Uh, what happened. Unbeknownst to Francis. No, in my hypo, Francis told the second contractor to go buy up the wood so oh. she could get out of the contract with Kevin. She did a bad thing. Yes. Now, if unbeknownst to Francis, the wood just disappeared. Remember when there was no drywall for a while? Do you remember that a few years ago when there was no drywall and they couldn't find it anywhere and they couldn't, I know in the state of Florida it was a horrible mess. They got it China. Yeah, but it was expensive and odd and it was just, it didn't work. Um, so that was an act of God, unforeseeable, that led a lot of people out of their contracts, right? Because if you don't, can't get the supply, then there's no breach of contract. It's an unforeseeable act of God. It was unforeseeable by both parties. Okay. Measure so direct damages are um, the profit that the, the, the plaintiff would have received if the contract had been performed. Let's just do some examples. It's the easiest way. William contracts to paint George's house for $15,000. Materials and labor will cost him $12,700. George cancels the contract. Who has breached? George. Good. Okay. So who's suing who? William sues George. Perfect. William sues George. That's exactly right. Now, how much profit does William get? Fifteen grand, or does he get something else? The, the difference. Yes. He doesn't get fifteen thousand. He only gets. And I always, I was taught the four P's. Put the plaintiff in a performance position. Four P's. Put the plaintiff in a performance position. Put the plaintiff in the position he would have been. Uh, now I've got to put Peter Piper going on, right? <laughs> put the plaintiff in the position he would have been if the contract had been fully performed. So if William had gotten the contract completely performed, what would he walk away with in his hollow pocket? $2,300. That's exactly right. Perfect. Now, if William could prove that he lost business that he did not bid on because he knew his time slots were taken up, could he then recover? If William has other damages, um, we will, oh, if William has other damages, like he lost another contract, that's called a consequential damage or lost profits, and he can get that if he can prove it. Okay, we're going to talk about that in just a second. So William hires George to design and build a house, the name's got flipped here. George hires an architect and pays 20 grand for plans before William changes his mind and she cancels the contract. Now what does William owe George? 
he still gets the profit. Right? The builder still gets the anticipated profit on the deal, but now the builder has actually done what? And he's expended some money. I always just look at the guy's bank account. I'm like, is he down 20 grand? Then he needs to get put back to zero, and then we'll give him the profit on top of that. So he gets the profit plus the 20. Now, my favorite question. Plaintiff says, um, I want time. I want 250 an hour for the time I spent getting ready to prepare to perform that contract judge or hearing officer and have you ever seen this okay what do you do with it no money <laughs> yeah they don't get labor on top of their respective profit their respective profit should it's part of it so you don't get your time and your labor on top of that unless you're a labor an hourly employee okay now we're at consequential damages these are the, there's a ripple here because they flow outward from the breach. They flow outward, and so I always think of a pool of water, and these things are flowing out, flowing out. And they, as they get way out on the edges, you might say, hmm, is that really? So it has to be foreseeable to the parties at the time they entered into the contract, has to be caused by, and you have to be able to prove the exact amount or some kind of amount. So Muriel contracts with guards to do a complete electrical update of a restaurant in three days. It takes them 10 days to complete the job. It's a restaurant. She's up and running. It's not a new business. What does she get? Profit for how many days? Seven. Seven. How does she prove it to you? Previous receipts. Previous receipts. We want to see previous receipts. Great. Carl hires a private plane to fly into Seattle for a business meeting on a proposed deal. That proposed deal is going to net him substantial profit. He doesn't tell the pilot anything about his meeting. He doesn't tell the pilot anything about anything. He just says, get me to Seattle. The plane has to make an emergency landing at Tacoma because of an act of God, let's say, and Carl misses his meeting. Does the pilot have to pay for Carl's substantial profit that he would have gotten at the business deal that he would have been in if he'd been to Seattle? See how complicated it's getting? It's getting that complicated. It's too far out in the ripple. You guys are shaking your heads. No. Not only is it too far out, but what else is missing in this hypo? Well, there's an act of God, there's that. But what else do we have? There's no duty open. Why? Why no duty open? Because the, uh, the pilot does not work directly for Carl. It's a contract with the company and... Well, the, well let's say the airplane company. He's not doing anything out of the ordinary. Maybe the emergency landing was an act of God. Yeah, it could be. But let's say it was foreseeable. Let's say that this emergency landing was foreseeable. So that let's put it within the airplane company's control. Even what, what would Carl have to do to make sure that his lost profits was borne, burdened onto the um, airline company? His, his contract would have to say, you guarantee me to get there by this time. Right, it's like FedEx, right, or UBS. You guarantee to get me there by this time or I'm gonna lose you know, $3 million on this deal and you need to know that. And then we might have an argument, but without that kind of knowledge, we're not gonna get it. Okay, a couple of fun ones on the wall. I love lost profits. So Karen plans to go into business selling greeting cards. I don't know about you, but I barely get or receive or use greeting cards anymore. She runs a brick and mortar business. That's also not happening anymore. It was really hard to find a picture of a greeting card company. Uh, but she enters into a contract to buy a store and due to her agent's malfeasance, the, the sale falls through. She sues her agent for her lost profits for 10 years. It's 
brand new business. Can we start laughing now or later? Because we're not going to award. What does she get? What does Karen get? Well, your, your profits for the last ten years have been zero. Yeah. So yeah, we'll give you that. Yeah, we'll give you zero. <laughs> we don't have any receipts. It's not like Karen who runs a restaurant. Yeah. So lost profits. The only exception to this is like maybe a Starbucks franchise or a KFC or something where a Chick Fil A, you know, where you could prove something. Um, okay. And this is America. This is the way we do things. <laughs> Explain. Well, there are other countries that if you get into a situation like that, you automatically get money. I think from the state. Because Oh, if you if you uh, if okay. There's situations where if you go into business and it doesn't work out, you get right. some money, but that's not doesn't happen. And if you have why well, can't tell that if you have an automobile accident and you kill someone. Okay, five minutes. I'm going to do, I got two things I think I want to do in five minutes. I think I'm going to do mitigation and breach of warranty. Yes, I am. That's what I'm going to do. All right. I have uh, on purpose, because I knew what was in the rest of the packet, sprinkled in little ideas of things that I knew were in the rest of the packet. So as you go through the rest of the packet, you see concepts that we talked about. But Carmen here has the breach of warranty prop. There are, in sales of goods, there are breaches of warranty. So I always think about the McDonald's coffee cup. But if I buy, remember the one that says, caution, this can be hot, right. right, after that big old case. So if this is kind, this is my favorite stuff, by the way, these, these kind bars. It says dark chocolate nuts and sea salt. Carmen, on the outside of this, does it say kind bars in there? No, it says kind. Well, it says whatever, it says kind, okay. You open it up, what's supposed to be inside there? What it says. What it says. Product has to conform to the label. If it doesn't, it's a breach of warranty and there can be damages. Product, what's actually in there? You can break it's it. It's been opened before and tampered with. Two forks. There's just forks in there. Okay. Are those forks going to make me feel all warm and fuzzy in my little belly like a kind bar is going to? No. no. So the product has to also be fit for the ordinary purposes to which it's been put. So if I have, is that my prop? Is this a prop? Sure it is. Okay. It has to actually be a real kind bar. Now, this drinking water is fit for its reverse osmosis. So what are some good purposes for reverse osmosis water? Consumption. Fish tanks. Ironing. Does anybody do that? Ironing. CPAP machines. Good for sleep apnea machines. That's kind of thing. Reverse osmosis. But if it's what's really in here is vinegar, is it fit for the ordinary purposes? That we would put, no, it's not fit for consumption. No, I'm not going to drink that much vinegar. So it has to be fit for the ordinary purposes. There's a third one. It's fit for the specific purposes. So if you go to a hardware store and you shop for a ladder, and you tell the salesperson, I need a ladder that's going to hold 350 pounds. And the salesperson says, here, this will work for you. And you take it home, and you're 350 pounds, and you fall right through. Because you rely on the seller's skill and expertise in picking that ladder, the seller may be liable to you for damages, breach of warranty, and sales of goods. Those are only for sales of goods. Now, the last one I want to talk about is mitigation of damages because I feel like you guys see this a lot. I would feel like you would. This is the idea that there are damages. Um, this is the example. Tim buys Christmas trees to sell and they aren't delivered. 
10 pedagogues and trees somewhere else for $5 more per tree, but he just says, no, I'll just sue the first supplier instead. I'm just going to sit and bring in a call, a small claims lawsuit or a civil lawsuit. And let's find out that, let's assume his damages were $100 per tree as lost profits times the number of trees. He's got receipts. He can show that. He's done this for many years. But he could have gone out and gotten um, alternate supply of trees, and it would have only cost him $5 more a tree. So his damages, instead of $100 a tree, are going to be what? Five. Going to be the five. Now, mitigation is going to be a defense that the, that the um, defendant's going to raise. Have you seen this? Something like that? What have you seen that's been similar to it? Sorry? Have to dig a bit? Yeah. I think that was really useful. Um, so it's the idea, I always call that you can't sit on the couch and do nothing. You know, if you have damages, um, and you see this in landlord tenant security deposit right there, you can't just let, sit, let some property sit and get moldy and nasty. And, One of the most that we see is they didn't rent it out because they sat there and took the one whole time to do repairs, and now instead of two weeks, they wasted three months. So, yeah, a landlord doesn't fails to make repairs in a timely fashion, and now it's not ready to be re-rented. Now they want three months of rent, and then they want because the repairs weren't done. So they fail to mitigate their damages. You would reduce their damage award against the plaintiff by their failure to mitigate. Another failure to mitigate I've seen um, is not taking the car back to the repair shop and letting the repair we're letting the, the repairman have an attempt to fix it. The repair's gone wrong. Plaintiff sues for the cost of the repair, and they, they never that they didn't. They said if she brought it back, let us try to fix it. We would have tried to fix it. She didn't let us do that. Why should we have to pay all her damage? She didn't even give us a chance. And so you know you you can mitigate damages there. Are we done? Yes. We are done. I have three minutes. Okay, I'm going to take my last two minutes. What questions do you have for me? Oh, let's do this one. I'm not going to let you have a question. So we talk about standard, standardized terms for just a second. You're bound to by what you sign, even if you don't read it. How many folks have had a plaintiff say, um, I, you can't, or somebody say, you can't hold me to that, the defendant say, you can't hold me to that contract because I didn't read it and I didn't know that term was in the contract and I would never have signed it if I'd known it was in there, Mary. You said you're shaking your head, so you've seen it. Okay, so we see it all the time. When are we allowed to, under the Raji, when are we allowed to not enforce a, con a contract term that someone has signed? Um, it could be a Sorry. not sound mind and body. It could be, but this, that's not what the Raji's looking at. The Raji is looking at if you find the plaintiff had reason to believe that the defendant wouldn't have signed the standardized agreement if they had known, if the defendant knew the term was in there and the defendant was in fact unaware, then you can decide that that term is not part of the agreement and that they're not bound by it. But that is a pretty high standard, right? If you knew that the plaintiff had reason to believe, and so there's two hypos in your, um, in your fact pattern. One, the second hypo is a little stronger than the first one. Um, furniture, I think I, I think it's a furniture purchase with an installment plan with high interest. 
Yeah, don't worry about that. And if the buyer says, but look, I'm really looking for a good deal on interest. I don't want a deal that has high interest. I don't want to sign a loan here that has high interest. And indeed, it has 60% interest, and the seller knows that, and the seller's glossing over it. Just sign here. Don't worry about that. Don't you read that contract. Just, this is fine. This is standard agreement. You know? um, no, you could possibly. But I like what I like about the Raji is that there's two prongs to that. Reason to believe. It's not just oh, I wouldn't have signed it if I had known it was in there. Also, the seller has to be doing something to, uh, to know that the, other, the buyer wouldn't have signed it. So I think that's really helpful. I think that's it for my three minutes. And I appreciate your um, patience. It is 4.15, and I would like to hand out to you the answers. In fact, you could, if you want, if you haven't written on yours, you can give me back your packets. Unless you want both packets. Like, test yourself if you want, and and answers on the Thank you. Mary? That's an attempt to obey my regulatory.